remarkable Christian man. He's also extremely humble, so I can't tell you uh, his name, but I can tell you his uh, story. And uh, to make things easy, I'm going to just kind of make up a name because it would be too hard being using he all the time or something like that. So uh, we're just going to call this guy uh, Jake. And Jake and I are pretty much the, the same age. Uh, we entered uh, the corporate world uh, about the same time, back in the mid-1980s. And uh, back in the day, I was a, a computer engineering manufacturing guy. And my, my buddy Jake, he was a... Uh, an accounting, finance, consulting kind of guy. And, uh, if any of you have worked in a, a manufacturing facility before, you typically know that the factory guys and, and the bean counters, they typically don't mesh too well. They're kind of like oil and water at times. But uh, my buddy Jake and I we seemed to, to figure out how to make all of that work. And uh, Back in uh, 2000, uh, Kathy and I uh, were, and the kids were just, uh, preparing or actually just returning to Harris uh, from finishing seminary. And during that time, Jake was offered this sweetheart job. Uh, he had been working in the public accounting field for, uh, for a number of years, and one of his clients said, you know what, we want you to become our, our chief financial officer. And so uh, he took a, a job uh, at a privately owned company uh, whose revenues were measured on an annual basis in the tens of millions of dollars. Uh, they had employees, well over uh, 100, 200, maybe 300 employees in, in multiple states. And it was really an exciting time. I'm, I'm starting Living Water, and it's kind of a new thing for me. My buddy Jake, he's starting this new job, and it's new for him. And uh, we were getting together uh, every other week uh, for breakfast, and we've been doing that for the past uh, 19 years or so. And then we just get together and we talk about uh, our lives and what's going on in, in the, uh, you know, in Living Water and in, in the business that, that he works at. And it's been really, really good. Now, what you need to understand, though, is the owner of the business uh, where my friend Jake works uh, isn't a Christian. And, and the fellow and, and his wife, they're, they're nice enough people, uh, but they're clearly guided by, by worldly principles. So the world kind of guides the, the decisions that they make. And at times, this may be challenging for Jake because he, he's trying to, to honor them. At the same time, he's trying to honor God. Uh, and these things are just kind of colliding together at times. And, and he's always been faithful in, in, in making sure that, that he, he honors the Lord and, and, and does right by this family. And uh, over uh, after he was there for just a few years, uh, some unexpected events occurred. And, and the owner of the business had to remove himself from the day-to-day -day operations of the business. And Jake was now tasked with not only overseeing the finances of the business, but all of the operations of the business. He, he becomes basically the, the chief executive officer. And uh, over the last two years, I have, or last 20 years, I should say, or two decades, I've witnessed firsthand how God has has richly blessed Jake as he carefully and, and faithfully guides this company and stewards this business. But I also witnessed something else. That God not only has blessed Jake, but God has also blessed these owners who are relatively worldly people through Jake's faithful and godly work. And what I have concluded is that God in his mercy and kindness many times blesses both the faithful and the unfaithful, uh, the godly and the godless, 
He does it not because we deserved it, but simply because of his kindness and his desire to be seen. And the fact that, that, that God blesses both the godly and the, the, and the ungodly, or the faithful and the unfaithful for his glory, is exactly what we're going to see today as we continue our study through uh, the book of Genesis, which we've entitled The Children of Abraham, A Legacy of Faith. Uh, this morning we're going to look at Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 to 43. It's uh, an interesting account uh, of godly people and ungodly people, of forthrightness and deceit and ultimately blessing. And some of uh, what we're going to read about today is going to be kind of strange. Uh, there's some parts in there that, that talk about ancient superstitions, uh, stuff that talks about modern science. And, and when I first read this, I'm kind of like, in the world are you talking about, God? I don't understand what this says and why some of these things have happened. And so uh, after spending a, a fair amount of time in commentaries and studying, I feel like things have, have finally kind of fallen in place, and hopefully they will fall in place uh, with you this morning. So we're going to go to uh, Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 to 43. If you're able to stand, if you would do so, please, in honor of God's word. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned from divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock, livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted as stolen. And Laban said, Good, let it be as you said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flocks. And Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. And he set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the stripe and all the black in the flock of Laban. 
And he put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. And whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there, so the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, when we last left uh, Laban, uh, what we had discovered was he was basically serving as an indentured servant, almost a a, a slave for his father-in-law. And and Jacob was in the process of uh, establishing quite a large family through uh, the wombs of of multiple women. Now, I would not recommend that for any man in this room. You you should stick with one lady, okay? But back in that day, uh, that's kind of what what they did. And uh, so his family grew relatively large. Uh, His first wife, a woman by the name of Leah, she uh, gave birth to six sons and a daughter. Uh, Leah had a servant by the name of Zilpah, which she gave to her husband, which that in and of itself is kind of, you know, messy. But she gave birth to two other sons to Jacob. And then similarly, uh, there was another servant woman by the name of Bilhah, and who was the servant of his second wife, Rachel, and she gives birth to two more of Jacob's son, sons. And then the only woman uh, that was basically in, in his uh, family there was his second wife, um, who was named Rachel, she hadn't given birth to anyone, and, and this was the woman who he loved more than anyone else. And by this time, uh, Jacob had been working in his father-in-law Laban's household, or working for his father-in-law Laban, for, for some 14-plus years. And Jacob had done all of this work for his father-in-law without pay because he wanted to earn the right to marry his wife, Rachel. Now, after these 14 uh, years or so, Jacob, he wanted to get out from underneath the thumb of his father-in-law, but there's a problem. Uh, Jacob couldn't just leave. He couldn't just get up and say, you know what, I'm done with you, I want to leave, because Rachel had not had any kids. And in that day, if a husband had married a wife and the wife didn't have any kids, the husband couldn't leave the father-in-law's household without his wife having a child. And so if she didn't have a child, he could leave, but he had to leave his wife behind. And so, so he loves Rachel, so he's just, he, he, he's, he's bearing underneath the, this burden because he can't leave. And uh, fortunately, last week Pastor Ben shared with us something wonderful happened to Rachel. And it's recorded right there in verses 22 through 24. It says this, Then God remembered Rachel, And God listened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add me another son. Now, with the birth of Joseph, everything changes. Okay, now Jacob can leave, and he can leave with his wives, he can leave with their servants, he can leave with his children. Uh, He can get out of Dodge. The only problem that he's got is he's got no money, and he's got no flocks because all this work that he's been doing has basically just earned him the right to marry Rachel. So, so here he is. He has all his wives. He has his servants. He has the kids. He wants to return to his family who's some 500 miles to the south. Uh, that was enough. He was done. 
It didn't matter that, that he didn't have anything else. He had to go. And, and some of you know exactly how Jacob was feeling. Because, because some of you have been in a place of desperation. Some of you have, have been in a time when you simply could not take it anymore. The status quo would, would not work any longer. And so as long as you've got your family, even if you have nothing else, you're just simply going to move on. And so that is what Jacob is prepared to do. And as we read earlier, Jacob goes to Laban and basically says, you know what, uh, it's been nice, it's been real. Actually, it hasn't been nice, it hasn't really been real. Uh, I appreciate you giving me your two daughters in marriage. I really only wanted one, I wanted Rachel. You slipped the other one in by deceit. Uh, but now that we've got kids, uh, I'm out of here. I'm done with you. So if it's the same, you know, adios, arrivederci, au revoir, whatever words he wanted to use, I'm just gone. Now, this creates an enormous problem for Laban. Because Jacob's been the man. He's, all the work that Jacob has been doing has actually prospered Laban. When Jacob showed up on the scene, Laban had a, a small flock. Now that Jacob has, has done this work over the 14-plus years, now uh, Laban's flock is enormous. And so Laban doesn't want Jacob to leave. So this starts a conversation between the two of them, and then it starts in verse 27. But Laban said to Jacob, If I found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination, the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. And Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I served you, and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has also blessed you, or has blessed you whenever I turn. But now then, provide, but now when shall I provide for my own household only? Now this conversation, it, it brings us to the for the first point that I want to uh, help all of us see, and it's this, that many times God blesses the worldly through the faithfulness of the God. You see, Laban realized that he had been blessed by God because of Jacob's hard work over all these years. Now, it's interesting how Laban came to this conclusion. The Bible tells us that he came to the conclusion through what? Divination. In other words, he, he went to the occult. Now, we don't know whether he went to, to Rhonda, the, the, the psychic that's down there on Lingelstown Road at the Dancing Moonbeams uh, Spa or whatever that place is called. I don't know whether he went by uh, the old friendlies there on 22 where, where the psychic reader's at. I don't know if he, he, he went to those establishments. Maybe he decided to do uh, the do-it-yourself kind of occult thing and bought one of those... Ouija boards that I remember my next-door neighbor I had as a, a kid, which was a kind of freaky thing. Uh, we don't know whatever he did, but through the process of divination, he comes to realize that the God of Jacob had blessed him, and he had blessed him because of Jacob. So what does that tell us about Laban? It tells us that he's not a God follower. You can call him whatever you want. You can call him a, a, a pagan, a heathen, an unbeliever, an atheist, atheist, uh, an agnostic. You can call him a nun. That would be N-O-N-E, not N-U-N. -N. 
you can call him that, all right? That's who Laban was. But for as much as he wasn't a God follower, he certainly knew that he was a recipient of God's blessings. And Jacob himself affirms this in verse 30 when he says this, For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. Look carefully at that last phrase. And the Lord has blessed what? Has blessed you wherever I turn. And brothers and sisters, we need to burn that into our minds. One of the ways that God blesses the worldly is through the faithfulness of the God. And as such, what you and I who call ourselves Christians do each and every day, it actually matters. Listen to the Apostle Paul's encouragements to the Christians living in the town of Ephesus. He says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as a bondservant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Now, it's easy to see that word bondservant and say, well, that's not me. That doesn't describe me. I, I, I'm not a, a, a slave. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a 21st century free person. So none of this applies to me. While it's easy to say that, folks, it's a complete cop-out. You see, the greater point here has to do with the issue of work. And that's why Paul clarifies things in verse 8 when he says, whether he is a bond servant or free. You see, as a Christian worker, our job is to work for our employer as if we are working for God because it makes a difference. Christians should be the hardest worker at the job site. Hands down. People should, should know that, that, that if I call myself a Christian, there should be nobody that can outwork me. We should come to work early. We should work hard all day long. We should leave late. We should be helpful to our fellow employees. We should be positive even if everything else around us is negative. We shouldn't complain. We shouldn't whine. We shouldn't participate in sowing disunity. And ultimately, we should work in such a way that it blesses our co-workers, our superiors, our customers, and our vendors, and the owners of the company. Why? Because we are ultimately working for God. That's who we're ultimately working for. Now, some might argue, I don't need to do that because I'm not a worker. But the fact of the matter is, we're all workers. Some of us work as students, some of us work as teachers, as mothers and dads, as factory workers, as public servants, as businessmen and women. The only difference between any of us is some of us get paid nothing, just like Jacob. Others get paid little, and others get paid a lot. Regardless of how little or how much we make, Every one of us is a worker, and when we work as to the Lord, not only are we blessed, 
but we bless those who we're working for. And God blesses those who we're working for. And even if they're like Laban and don't acknowledge it, or that don't acknowledge God or worship him or love him. Now, realizing this, that he needs Jacob, and that Jacob isn't about to continue working for nothing, Laban continues the conversation. So they're having this conversation, and Laban says, you know what, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shouldn't give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pass through your flocks and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled or spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, that they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs that found with me shall be counted as stolen. So Laban comes up to Jacob and says, dude, you can't leave. Okay, you're too valuable to me. There is no way that you can leave. What do I have to pay you to keep you? What can I give you? And Jacob replies, and it's interesting when he says, he says, I don't want you to give me anything. Because he wasn't looking for charity. He was just looking for that which he's already earned. He's worked for 14 plus years and hasn't gotten anything other than, obviously, wives. But he's not been provided any kind of other income. And so Jacob, he makes this proposal which involves Laban taking a, a portion of his flock and providing it to Jacob as payment for what he's already done and then giving him an opportunity to make additional payment along the way. And the proposal is really straightforward, because the, the, the sheep in, in the Near East in the, uh, at this time were typically all white. And the goats were typically either all black or typically all brown. But there were some sheep, and some goats for that matter, that were multicolored. And these multicolored animals would represent roughly about 20% of the flock. So what Jacob is doing is he is asking for a modest 20% of Laban's existing flock, and then any other multicolored, whether they be striped, spotted, or speckled livestock that would be born out of that 20%. That's what he's looking for, basically. Now, it doesn't get any more fairer than that. And Laban is like, yeah, I like this deal. This is a good deal. And he says, good, let it be as you said. Because he thinks he's getting a good deal. He, and he doesn't think he's getting a good deal. He knows that he's getting a good deal. Now this brings us to the second point from this passage, and it's this. The godly do not seek to take advantage of others. Jacob's request is incredibly modest, folks. Now, this is not how the world negotiates. I spent the, the last six years or so at, at AMP as a, as a product manager. I spent a lot of time uh, negotiating with customers. And, and there's a, a fellow who is an expert in negotiations. His name is Ed Broadout. And this is what he says. He says, a proven strategy for achieving higher results is opening with an extreme position. Some of you who have done deals, you understand exactly what he's talking about. Sellers should ask for more than they expect to receive, and buyers should offer less than they're prepared to pay. People who, do, who aim higher 
do better. Folks, that's the way that the world works. You ask for far more than you want or you need with the hopes of getting what you're actually shooting for. That's the way that this game gets played. And you know how this works because you're selling a car or you're selling a house or you're selling something on eBay and so you make the price really high, higher than you really need, knowing that somebody's going to come along and try to talk you down by putting in a low ball price. That's the way that it works. And all of this begins this twisted, painful, excruciating dance that we go through until we all really agree upon a price, which in the end was really the price that everybody knew that they should be worth in the first place. However, that's not the way that Jacob worked. Jacob offered right out of the chutes what he thought was fair. He didn't try to get the upper hand. He didn't ask for 50% when he was looking for 40%. He told Laban what he wanted. Laban jumped on it knowing a fair deal when he saw it. But we say to ourselves, well, that's just how the game works. Every seller offers high. Every buyer offers low. Well, that might be the way that the world thinks the game is to be played. But brothers and sisters, that's not the way that God thinks the game should be played. As Christians, this is how we're called to negotiate. I'll give you just a couple little samples of Scripture. Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, it always starts with the other person. When in worldly negotiations does that ever happen? As a Christian, it always should start with a view towards the other person. Psalm 112 says this, It is well with a man who deals generously and lends, and who conducts his affairs with justice. You see, we're called to, to do that which is just. Not that which is expedient, not that which we think is going to give us the upper hand, but that which is ultimately just. And then 1 Corinthians 10 says this, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. In other words, view things from the perspective of the other person. You see, the goal isn't to maximize our advantage as a Christian. The goal in any kind of, of relationship, any kind of negotiation is ultimately to maximize God's glory. Now that doesn't mean that, that we let ourselves get walked on, rather it means we simply do that which is fair and trust that God will ultimately work on our behalf. So, with the deal done, everything seems to be fine. It looks like it's a win-win. Jacob's happy, Laban's happy, Figure everybody's going to go and going to go and do the, the you know do what they said they were going to do, but Laban he wants more. He's not satisfied with keeping eighty percent and giving twenty percent away. He wants more. Look at verses thirty-five and thirty-six. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it. And every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. You see, these verses, they demonstrate to us that there is a related yet opposite truth 
to the first truth that I shared with you, that the godly don't seek to take advantage of others. And that opposite truth is this. The, wor will, the worldly actively seek to take advantage of others. Before Jacob can go and, and do the whole flock separation thing, Laban beats him to the punch. Laban goes and he finds all of the multicolored sheep and goats, the ones that were going to be Jacob's, and he takes them away. But he doesn't just take them away, he takes them a three days journey away. Now, if this would be modern times, and he put those bad boys on a tractor trailer and he took them away on a three days journey. I mean, if you're, you're out in like Colorado, may, you know, maybe Utah or something like that. So, so these sheep and these goats are far, far away. So what is he doing other than being a complete jerk? What is he actually working on here? He's doing everything possible to minimize how many uh, sheep and goats that Jacob actually gets to have. And Laban's plan is based simply on genetics. If he removes all of the multicolored goats and sheep from the flocks that Jacob's managing, then Jacob would only be left to watch over what? The white sheep and the black or the brown goats. And when white sheep mate with white sheep, and black goats mate with black goats, and brown goats mate with brown goats, genetics comes into play, and typically what's going to happen is the white goats, or the white sheep are going to produce white sheep, the black goats are going to produce black goats, etc. And in all those cases, what? They're going to be Laban's because they're monocolored. So in the end, Laban would have more sheep and goats than Jacob would, and he, Jacob would have done all of the work and had nothing to show for it. And brothers and sisters, that too is our world. We live in a world where the powerful and the privileged exploit the weak and the marginalized. And you know what's crazy? The weak and the marginalized who get exploited? They exploit those who are weaker and more marginalized than themselves. And the whole thing works down the chain. Everybody's crying for justice, but the fact of the matter is the people that are experiencing injustice are applying injustice to other people. It is completely insane, but that's the way that things work. We live in a world where this thing called the politics of identity, I don't even know if I completely understand it, but they seek to, to divide and separate rather than bringing people together. We live in a world where people always work to gain the advantage. And I see this all the time. We live in a world where men use women for their own advantage, where women use men for their own advantage. And they don't care anything about the other person. That, that's what has brought rise to these insane websites and, and apps like Tinder, where, where it's just people exchanging sexual intimacy to one another. They don't even care about each other. It's this crazy world that we live in. We live in a world where sibling takes advantage of sibling. And as a pastor, I see this firsthand. I go to a home, and, and, and the body of mom or dad is laying there. The body's not even cold yet. And the kids are squabbling over who gets the big screen television. 
It's insane. And it doesn't just happen once or twice. It happens lots of times. It is crazy what we do. Where grown children exploit their parents. There are people in our church family, older people in our church family, who have, quote, loaned money to their kids. Their kids have borrowed money. The kid never, ever planned on returning the money. And, grand, and mom or dad who's 65, 70, 80 years old, who's living on a, on a fixed income, the kid's taking their money. And they've exploited their parents. This is insanity. We, we live where parents fail their kids, where authorities prey on the very people they're to protect, where employees use their workers, where workers use their employers. And these behaviors, folks, they're popularized in our culture. They make movies out of this stuff. But I've got to tell you this. While our world might turn a blind eye to this, God doesn't turn a blind eye to this. In Proverbs 22, he says this. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Rest assured, the God of the universe, he doesn't miss any of this stuff. And judgment and justice, it will come. It will come unexpectedly. It will come swiftly. It will come powerfully. And if it's bad, that the ungodly do this, folks? What happens when we do this? What happens when we, those who claim the name of Jesus, take advantage of other people? When we exploit the weak and the vulnerable? When we ignore the, the uh, plight of the defenseless? When we turn a, a blind eye to injustice? Where we care more about our, our, our political party or our, our politics than we care about our neighbor. What happens then? What does that say about us? What kind of message does it send to a watching world? When we become no different than the balance of the world, Jesus' name and his church, which he died for, gets abused and ridiculed. You know, we need to remember we don't need to look down our noses at other people. We need to examine ourselves and say, is that how I'm really living? What do I need to change in my life? Do I care, care more about my advantage or do I care more about my God? What do I really ultimately care about? Now this brings us to the final truth that we learned from this passage. Look again at verses 37 to 42. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the stripe, and all the black in the flock of, of Laban. And he put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, 
that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be laid into the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. You see, once again, Jacob has been deceived by Laban. And now he's left to take care of Laban's flock, which now consists of entirely monocolored sheep and goats. And the point that we're going to see as we work our way through this last section is this. That God blesses the godly, both in their foolishness and in their faithfulness. See, Jacob is clearly disadvantaged right now. But he's got a plan. He's not a man without a plan. He has got a plan. He's going to do his best to ensure that all of these monocolored sheep and monocolored goats that he has will produce multicolored sheep and goats. That's his game plan. All right, the cards have been stacked against me, but I'm going to figure out how I can get these two, a white female and a white male, to produce a multicolored child, basically, or a, a black goat female and a black goat male to produce a multicolored child. He's got a plan, but rather than trusting that God will make this happen, the God who, who revealed himself to Jacob some 20 years, 18 years earlier in Bethel, instead he decides to go with superstition rather than faith. You see, in Jacob's day, people believed that they could control the breeding of their animals based upon what the animals saw while they were mating. So if they saw solid-colored things, they would end up with solid-colored animals. But if they saw multicolored things, they, while they're mating, they'll end up with multicolored offspring. And so this explains why he takes these sticks from the trees and he cuts these little lines in them so that you've got dark, dark lines and light lines between the stuff where there's bark and where there's no bark. Now, husbands uh, and living water, uh, this would be the equivalent of you and I plastering our bedroom with posters of professional athletes. All right, so our wives might concede athletic children. Okay, that's really what's going down here, basically. Okay, that's what's happening. And, and we laugh at it because we know that it's complete, utter foolishness. Okay, but what's crazy is it actually appears like it worked here. But Jacob doesn't just go with, with foolish superstition. He, he also goes with human wisdom. He takes strong sheep, and he mates them together with other strong sheep. And, and he takes strong goats, and he mates them together with other strong goats. He makes sure that he puts the sticks in front of them so that they're going to come out strong and multicolored. And then he takes all of the weak sheep, and he mates them with other weak sheep and doesn't put the sticks in front of them so that they produce monocolored weak sheep. So he gets all the strong speckled sheep and Laban gets all the weak monocolored sheep. That's his plan. And guess what? It works too. Look at verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. So how did this happen? Did, did ancient superstition actually work? 
Uh, did human wisdom actually, through the selective mating, actually make things work? You could be tempted to believe that. But I'm going to steal a little bit of Pastor Ben's thunder from next week, because he's on rest weekend this weekend. He's not here at all. And he's preaching next weekend. Let me take you into a little bit of this passage. We're going to make things harder for him, actually, next week. All right? Look at verses 4 through 9 of next week's passage in Genesis 31. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah, his two wives, into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the strength of my, uh, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock were spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock were striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and gave them to me. It wasn't superstition that grew Jacob's flock. And it wasn't human wisdom that grew his flock. Rather, it was the blessing of the Almighty God that met Jacob's needs. And so it is with us. God is gracious in that he blesses you and me, his children, both in our faithfulness when we do things that we should be doing, and in our foolishness when we trust in things other than him. Take a moment and think about your own life for a second. Think about the, the times there was an issue in your life, a problem in your life, something that needed to get solved. Sometimes we try to solve those things, if you're like me, by doing foolish things, stupid things, worldly things, ungodly things. And then there are other times when I have better days that I actually do things that are godly and wise. And what ultimately solved our problem? What, was it the, the, the foolish things that we did or the wise things that we did that ultimately solved our problems? No. It's because that God in his kindness, he pours out his blessings upon his children. Now let me give you an illustration of this. In 1992, uh, Kathy and I had been living in Southern California for uh, three years at that time. Uh, we went out there when we were both 24. We went out there without any children. Uh, by uh, 1992, we had had our first son, Mike. He was, he was born at the little company of Mary Hospital in Torrance, California. Mike prides himself in being a native Californian. I have absolutely no idea why he prides himself in being a native Californian, but he does. And uh, while we were there, we became part of an amazing church. And, and our faith and our trust of the Lord grew by leaps and bounds while we were there. We learned at that church, uh, we went there as uh, basically immature Christians. We loved Jesus, uh, but we before we went to California, we, we were living here right out of college. We were here for about two years before we moved to California. We were going to Hershey Free Church. We were... Uh, uh, pastor Dave Martin was the pastor there. Dave's an amazing guy, amazing church. And you know what Kathy and I did? We sat on our butts. That's what we did. For, for, for two years, we went to church and we just sucked everything in from Dave Martin. We sucked everything in from that church family. 
And we did absolutely nothing. But we love Jesus. And then God put us in Southern California, and he put us in this church. And in that church, God blessed us by, by teaching us how beautiful it is and what a great joy it is to, to serve God's people. We, we learned that. We, we got involved in all kinds of things. We were doing homeless ministry. We were go, going down to Tijuana when it was safe to go down to Tijuana and working in, in orphanages. We were helping out in Sunday school classes and things like that. But, but he taught us that we not only needed to be sacrificial with our time, he also taught us that we needed to be sacrificial with our money. And he taught us that, that we weren't to be selfish about holding back. And so rather than throwing a, you know, a five in the plate or whatever we, you know, we brought along with us one day, we actually began to do this thing called tithing. We actually looked at our gross income and we said, what's 10% of that? And, and we would write a check before we went to church to actually place the thing in the plate because we knew we wouldn't be self-controlled enough to do it while the plate was getting passed by. It was something that we had to decide to do. And in the process, God poured joy into our hearts. He taught us the importance of, of being in a small group. And, and, and when, when you're in a place where you don't know anybody, finding a small group where you meet together once a week with people, it was amazing. We, some of our best friends came from that small group in Southern California. Suddenly, we were actually living for something bigger than Mike and Kathy Leonzo. We were living for something bigger than our marriage. We were living for something bigger than our family. We were living for, for God and the gospel. It was this awesome thing. But you know what? We were homesick. We wanted to come back to Harrisburg. And so I did something very stupid. When I started at AMP, I got hired, hopefully because they thought that I was smart and I was a hard worker, but I also got hired for another reason, because when I handed in my application, under references, <laughs> there was a name that was written under references, and the name was Augie Castell, and the title was Vice President of Manufacturing, AMP Incorporated. <laughs> so when, when you hand in a, an application to AMP Incorporated, and, and the reference on the on the application is the vice president of manufacturing, you're probably going to get hired. And Augie, he looked out for Mike Leonzo's career. And I had been working here in Harrisburg for two years, and, and the division that Augie was in charge of bought this company called Matrix Science in Southern California, and they needed someone to run their computer department. And Augie gave me a call and said, Mike, I know that you're young, but I think this is a great opportunity. And so Augie made sure that Kathy and I got to move to Southern California. He put a 24-year-old kid in charge of an information system department of a $70 million company with 12 employees, most of whom were double my age. You should feel very bad for those employees because I learned how to be a good manager there by being a very bad manager there. Augie was my lifeline at Amherst. But I wanted to come home, and through a, through a, a couple of telephone conversations I had with a, a, a former boss at AMP, a, a guy by the name of, of Homer, who was a really cool guy, uh, Homer had a job for me back here in Harrisburg. So rather than talking to Augie, I made the deal with Homer. 
And all you found out, and he was not happy. But I had already committed. So uh, we're, we're getting ready to do the whole move back. And you know what? I've been there for a number of years. So they decided they're going to throw me a going away party. And guess who just happens to be in Southern California visiting the factory but Augie? And so they invite Augie to my going away party. So, so we're at this nice restaurant, we've got a private room, we're having this going away party, and, and the, the, the division manager of, of Matrix Science says, hey, Augie, why don't you say a, a, a couple words uh, for Mike? So Augie gets up, and this is what he says, and Kathy's there, she will attest to this because she was there. Augie says this, I have only one thing to say to Mike. Everybody's entitled to make one mistake in their career. And this is Mike's. And he sat down. In his speech. Wow. <laughs> and you want to know what? Augie was absolutely right. I moved back here to Kathy. The job that I, I took was actually working behind the Topps Bar over here on Dairy Street. There's a building that says Fox Time. That was Amp's factory of the future. I was in, in charge of... Uh, the, all the, the computer integration of all the manufacturing equipment for this factory of the future was a research project. There was no deadlines, it was unlimited funds, and I hated every minute of it. I had taken matters into my own hands. I had trusted God, and I reaped the consequences of my own foolishness. But God wasn't done with me. Nine, nine months later, I wish it would have been nine minutes later. Nine months later, out of the blue, another job opportunity materialized there at AMP in another division. It was a job that I wasn't qualified for at all, but the guy who was looking to hire someone, I had worked for him, and I was hired nonetheless. And in that job, over the last six years of my career at AMP, I learned how to take dreams and concepts and turn them into reality. I loved every minute of it. And those skills, they transferred over seamlessly to planning a church. And see, what I learned was both in my foolishness and in my faithfulness, God blessed me just like he blessed Jacob. And he did it for my joy and for his glory. And while all that is great, while it's wonderful that God blessed Jacob with great flocks that he didn't deserve, while it's wonderful that God blessed me with a, a career and positioned me to, to do what I'm doing now, a career I didn't deserve, but I was blessed, no doubt, and while it's wonderful that in many ways God has blessed you in the midst of your foolishness and your faithfulness, there is one thing that God has done, one blessing that God has bestowed that makes every other blessing pale in comparison. Because you see, there was someone who was extremely faithful. And that someone's faithfulness that was blessed by God ultimately blessed those who were unfaithful. And those unfaithful people are you and me. You see, you and I, we do not deserve.
God's blessings. And this blessing that God has given us is sparing us from the fullness of his wrath that he rightly possesses due to our sin. So many people come to God and they say this, God, why is my life like this? Why are things so incredibly God, why are my relationships so messed up? Why am I and my family members battling sickness? Why, why is money so tight? Why are my kids wrecked? Why is my, my world uh, work unfulfilling? Why, God, I don't deserve this. But the fact of the matter is, we do deserve it. All of that pain and suffering in our lives that we think that we don't deserve, we ultimately do deserve it. But the fact of the matter is, rather than pouring out his wrath upon us, God instead poured out his wrath upon his son. God cursed Jesus so that he might bless in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says this. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God by the death of his son, much more now that we are all reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, though, through whom we now have received reconciliation. God pours out his wrath for our sin upon his son. So that we might. That's the message of Christianity. Those who deserve nothing get everything. Totally amazing. Those who deserve death get life. What other faith system offers that? Whatever little God can do that for us. Only the, the God of the Bible, only the, the gospel of Jesus Christ plays this out in our lives. Where God takes the, the blessings that should have been poured out upon Jesus he pours them out upon us. That, brothers and sisters, gives us hope. It should change the way that we do things. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for these people. Thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, while it's difficult to understand at times, I, I thank you for the many men and women throughout the, the centuries who have faithfully studied your word and written commentaries and Help us to, to come to understand things that otherwise are difficult to understand. And Father, thank you for the truth that, Lord, you pour out blessings upon the ungodly because of the faithfulness of the God. Thank you most of all for doing that for your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Heavenly Father, if there be even one in this room who has not yet come to place their faith and trust in Jesus, that, Lord, today, that you would begin this beautiful process of drawing them to yourself, to God, that they might repent of their sins, and they might receive Jesus in faith. And, Lord, all of the benefits of the cross, and 
the empty tomb would be poured down upon them. God, thank you for this time that we could be together. It's through your son that we pray. And what God's people say. Amen. Amen.